If you will, turn to Luke chapter 10. Um, I had a whole different plan when I came here this morning. I, as I was going through, listening to our brother preach this morning and skimming through some scriptures, just reflecting on what he was saying, I, the Lord put this on my heart, so I kind of did a 180 a little bit. Um, our, our, our brother was asking many times today during the service, are you thankful? Are we thankful for the revelation and what the Lord has showed us? You know, are you thankful that the Lord has not shut up our eyes Amen. like you did in Isaiah 44, 18? You know, I'm thankful. Yes, I'm very thankful for that. Amen. I'm very thankful for, for being saved from the delusion and the deception of the perilous times. The Lord has revealed much to us. You know, I'm I'm thankful. It's as simple as I can read Daniel 8 and know that, and I'm not bought into some lie about that because the Lord has not shut my eyes. You know, it explains itself. I'm thankful for that stuff. I'm thankful for a lot of things in that uh, aspect. You know, the Lord, I've I've been overwhelmed in the last week or so. I wrote a short email to our pastor a couple days ago telling them, you know, how the the uh, yay rathers and even more all the things God has done for us. Yay rather, even more. It just keeps getting better and better and better. I'm, you know, I'm thankful for that. Um, my goal, my desire here today is, you know, it's we're supposed to be for reproof, instruction, exhortation. My goal is for my very quick thing that I'm going to say here is to provoke and to exhort you. To love our Lord Jesus Christ more. Amen. Amen. And that should be our goal in everything we do when we leave here every day. But that's my main purpose for this. And as I said earlier, I am very thankful for, for all those things. But the thing that I'm most thankful for is in Luke 10. Uh, Luke, Luke chapter 10, I'm going to start reading in verse 17. But the, the, I'm, most of you are probably familiar with it. But this is where Jesus sends out the 70. And they go and, you know, they heal the sick and they cast out devils. And, and, and their main purpose is, is to say that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's nigh unto you. Right. And then they, they come back after doing all this. And I'm going to start reading in verse 17. <clears throat> and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding, in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice, because your names are written in heaven. Amen. You know, anybody that has spent much time with me in the last couple of months, this is going to, some of this is going to sound repetition, but repeti- repet- repetitive, but that's okay. Um, I want us to go ahead and turn to Revelation 15. I'm going to read that in just a minute. Um, one of my favorite verses has become, as y'all have heard quoted many times, is Second um, Corinthians 5, verse 14 and 15. I'm going to read verse 15 really quick. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. As we reflect on what I'm fixing to say very quickly, um, I want us to reflect on it. In the light of Second Corinthians 5.15 where he talks about that we should live our lives for the one that died for us. That should be the driving purpose and focus in our lives and everything we do. And if it's not, then we need to examine ourselves. But um, back in Luke uh, 10, I, I, I'm always fascinated by the fact Jesus was excited. Jesus was excited when he's with these guys because he says, you know, behold, you know, I, I, I'm, and I beheld Satan as lightning falling from heaven. And he said, you know, I've given you power to tread over serpents and scorpions and do all these things. He was excited that this has happened, but yet he put the whole thing in context. But be not, um, rejoice not in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Something that I've said a lot of times, we're all going to stand before the God of heaven one day. And we're all going to be judged. And we're all going to be judged There's not going to be any respect of men in that day, of persons in that day. And the Lord is going to set a group of 
men and women on his left. It's going to be his goats. And he's going to set another group of men and women on his right. And that's going to be his sheep. That's going to be his people. And in that day, I firmly believe, and the Lord through his good mercies has verified it to me through his scriptures a few days ago, that I, a scripture that I wasn't aware of. I have said often that in that day, the goats on the left are going to know that they deserve to be there. That they are on the left and they're going to spend eternity in hell because they deserve it. Because God is just. And, it's, I'm fiction, and I know he's just because he says he is and I'm fixing to read it to you. And the ones on the right are going to know that they deserve to be with the ones on the left. Except for that sovereign love that the Lord has shown us. That we just sung about a minute ago. And uh, verse, Revelation 15, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. And this, the point I want us to get is that we serve a just God and that we will all understand that one day. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? For thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. One day soon, these judgments, the fact that God is just and is true, is going to be made manifest to all of us. There's not going to be any doubting, any wondering about it. The, both those that are in hell for eternity and those that are in eternity with God are going to know that God was just and perfect. And I'm thankful this day that one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I am thankful, and I hope everybody else here is, that we willingly in this congregation bow our knees to him now and have submitted ourselves to him. And knowing that, as Ephesians 1 tells us, that according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Knowing that it is God that chose us and knowing that it is God that died for us and gave himself for us. As I'm going to close with 2 Corinthians 5.15. In reflection of all of this and knowing that, this, that the Lord has done this work and that he has revealed himself to us, I would encourage and exhort and provoke everybody here to go home, read 2 Corinthians 5.15 and think about it, reflect on it and know that and see if you believe and see if your life bears out that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him that died for them and rose again. And I would just provoke us to challenge ourselves that our lives would not be for ourselves, but would be live for the one who died for us and gave himself for us. Because that is the ultimate and the best and the most important revelation that we have. That's it. Amen. This sermon is going to be a little bit differently than probably most that we hear today. I'm here to primarily exhort us and motivate us. Um, the pastor has touched on this subject many a time, but I'm going to try to expand on it a little bit. Some of you in the congregation are doing great at that, uh, at this, and that's good. I want to encourage you and those that are haven't thought about this subject to think about it and maybe start doing it. There'll be two aspects of this thing. One will be worldly and the other will be spiritual, but both are needful for us. I've been gripped by the subject for about the last three, four weeks, ever since Bruce's memorial. It hasn't, some of part of that memorial got caught, caught me and didn't let me go. Matter of fact, I prepared most of this stuff the day after the memorial service because it had just gripped me and I had to do something with that what I thought about and so I wrote a lot of this down then. At that the end of that service, Tim Boffey got up here and read a poem. I don't know that any of you remember the poem or remember the implication of that poem. And that poem was had a great implication for us that are still alive. And I'm going to read the last section of that poem. The poem is called In Flanders Field, and it says, For you, I mean, to you, from falling hands we throw the torch, to be yours.
to hold on high. But if ye break faith with us who die, we shall not sleep in Flanders Field. And this was written during World War One, from the living, from the, from those that had died to encourage those that were still living to carry on the fight. For in carrying on the fight, those that have died, it gives value to their sacrifice. So therefore, my title of my sermon or speech here is called The Torch is Passing. Because with Bruce's passing, it was the first one that has started to pass the torch to the next generation. And my generation will be passing the torch to the youngers over the next who knows how many years. The first aspect, as I said, is worldly. And I'll use Bruce as an example because that's what triggered all this for me. You heard in that memorial service how Bruce was able to build things, fix things, invent things, run a business, fly a plane. Those were things that he was able to do. Those were skills he had that I encourage the younger generation to acquire some skills, even though they may not be career-oriented, to have some skills to be able to do something. All right? I encourage... I encourage um, the mothers to teach their their daughters how to cook because these things will be passing away with our generation. You know, what what a shame it would be if Sylvia's velvet cake recipe got lost. That would be a shame. It really would, Deborah. <laughs> you know you know what what will your accomplishments be in a worldly sense? You know, most kids, their biggest accomplishment is they got a new high score and got Guitar Hero. What good does that do them in a worldly sense? I'll get to the spiritual later. But that's what I mean. There are things that need to be acquired, skills, and be able to do something other than just push a button type thing. And also I'm going to address two, two classes of people. I'll call them the older generation and the younger generation. The older generation needs to show the younger generation how to do things, how to think. Why do we do this? How do we do this? What do we think about this? The younger generation needs to ask questions. Ask them, how do you fix this? How does this work? And things like that so that you can acquire some skills, some knowledge, something. And those are all carnal things, but yet we have to live in this world, so we need to learn some of those carnal things. The next important part is spiritual, as it always is. And going back to Bruce again, Bruce, one of the things that was brought up is that he shared his faith and his knowledge and his truth with other people. He engaged other people. He asked them questions to make them think about what they believed, why they believed it, and to try to, by that method, lead them to the truth. All right? You know, he used to ask questions like was brought up in the uh, memorial. How do babies get saved? That isn't addressed by most people. Did you know that there's verses missing in your NIV? You know, remember the rock story? How old is this rock? How do we know how old that rock is? And challenge people by questions to examine and to think about what they believe and how they believe it. To ponder what they do. Now I have some questions for the young people. This generation, our generation, has held fast the truth. That's one of the things that Bruce was noted for. He held fast the truth. Will you guys hold fast the truth that we're passing on down to you? Our generation, in a respect, cleared the land. 
cut down the trees? What will you do with that plowed field we have given you? Will it go to weeds, to seed as they say? Will heresies creep in and weeds spring up in this beautiful plowed field that we have given you? I'm just asking some questions to make you think. We have dug out gold, precious gems, nuggets out of the word of God. What are you going to do with those nuggets? Are you going to spend them foolishly? Are you just going to let them neglect them? Let them sit in a closet somewhere? They say that the pilgrims take the arrows. All right? Our generation has been the pilgrims in lots of respect. We've taken a lot of arrows. My question is, is when it's your turn, will you be able to take some arrows? Or will you duck them? Will you build on what we have given you? We have a great foundation in this church of truth and knowledge and understanding. Will you build on it? Or will you just maintain it? Or at worst, will you let it decay? If we were able to come back in 20 or 30 or 40 years, what would be preached in this church? What would be believed in this church? And that's a question we've got to ask because the torch is passing in 20, 30, 40 years. We're not going to be here. It's going to be up to you. You need to consider this now while we're still here. Most people, a lot of people here, put a lot of time in education, which is good. We've got MBAs. We've got CPAs, hopefully. We've got RNs. We've got chemical engineers, we have mechanical engineers, we have electrical engineers. How much time do you put in to your spiritual education? To putting those things in your heart, hiding them there, keeping them there? Because the MBAs, the CPAs, one day will be totally useless. But all that time and effort you put into spiritual education will go on for eternity. Some people worry about their earning potential, their salary, what kind of money they're going to make during our life. My question to you is, what's your spiritual potential going to be? What is your spiritual salary going to be over your lifetime? And these are questions that the younger generation needs to start asking themselves because they will be the generation that leads on after we have gone. What to do? First of all, you need to make a commitment, as in all things. You have to commit to it. Say, yes, I'm going to think about this, I'm going to ponder, I'm going to do this and do these things. And follow up on it on a regular basis. One sermon, one day, that's it. You have to make a commitment to carry on what this generation is leaving you. We have great advantages in this in your generation. We have tons of outlines that you can review online with a click of a mouse. You don't have to go borrow a book from the library. You don't have to borrow a manuscript from the church library, any of that. You can click a button. You've got MP3 players. You can put the entire King James Bible and every sermon that Jonathan's ever preached on something the size of my thumb. An MP3 player. Do you use that great tool that we've been giving to review sermons, listen to sermons, hide that truth in your heart, understand it. And that's what the older generation is there for. If you don't understand it, ask somebody. We would be glad, more than glad to explain it to you in great and graphic detail to be able to do that. And that's what one of the responsibilities of the older generation is to do, but the younger generation's also got to ask. It helps. Grandparents and parents, we have a vast knowledge in our heads. We need to communicate that to our children. 
we need to tell them stories. Stories are great things. Stories can tell them how we address difficulties, adversities. Rollin, have you told your grandkids about the cherry pie? That's one great story that will build their faith and encourage them. Matthew, have you told them about the lady you bumped into and got your job at Lockheed? Or Eric, have you told your kids about who lived next to who so that you got a job at BB&T? So that when this next generation needs some encouragement, we have great stories in the Bible, but they can look to dad or Mr. So-and-so and realize God helped them. God arranged things. God moved mountains for them so that things could get done that could be delivered from the mouth of lions and jump over walls or whatever this your challenges may be. But we need to do it because the torch is passing. I have a suggestion for you fathers in line with this storytelling. Next time you do a Bible study, work in a little bit of personal experience in with your Bible study so that they have something real life practical to go with that Bible story. You may not have had them thrown into a lion's den, but some of these corporate situations I hear about are pretty much lion's dens. And work that into the Bible stories with you. And a suggestion, just a way to to work in something that I've said here. And sadly, that storytelling is going away with this high-tech generation. And I don't think it should. I think that storytelling, personal experience, personal testimony should be part of your life to pass on to your younger generation. And the older and the younger generation should be asking, Dad, why do we do this? Why do we believe this? How did this church get here in this little place called Greenville, South Carolina? Do a lot of you younger guys know? Do you younger people know who the founders are? Why they're here? We've given up lots. We've taken a lot of hits. We've moved. We've changed jobs. We've gotten rid of friends to come to this place. But will that be known in the next generation? We only have a few years left to do this. And your lives, you younger generation, is either going to be a glory to us or a spot on us. Because we shall all soon sleep in Flanders Field. The torch is passing. And I was very gripped with this, with Bruce's passing. And I want you to consider it as well. May God be blessed. Brother Stephen and Brother Holland. Do me a favor if you don't have a uh, Psalter. You can walk in the back and get one. I think there's a handful down there. But we're going to be singing in just a few minutes. I am thankful to be part of a body, a church body, where the Lord has many gifts. He tells us there will be many gifts in the church, and I'm just thankful to see that. My objective for today is just a couple of three things I want us to do. One, I want us to praise the Lord God. Two, I want us to think about what He has done for us. For He has done a lot for us. And then third, at the end, I want us to sing praises unto the Lord. Because the Bible tells us to do that. So let's do that. I want you to flip in your Bibles, if you would, to Psalm 147. I'm going to read this psalm. And then I'm going to come back through and make some comments on it. Psalm 147. Psalm 147. Praise ye the Lord, for it is good to sing praises unto our God, for it is pleasant and praise is comely. The Lord doth build up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcasts of Israel. He healeth the broken in heart and bindeth up their wounds. 
He telleth the number of the stars. He calleth them all by their names. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. Yes. Amen. The Lord lifteth up the meek. He casteth the wicked down to the ground. Sing unto the Lord with thanksgivings. Sing praise upon the harp unto our God, who covereth the heaven with clouds, who prepareth rain for the earth, who maketh grass to grow upon the mountains. He giveth to the beast his food, and to the young ravens which cry. He delivereth not, he delighteth not in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear him, Amen. in those that hope in his mercy. Right. Praise the Lord, O Jerusalem. Praise thy God, O Zion. Amen. For he hath strengthened the bars of thy gates. He hath blessed thy children within thee. Right. He maketh peace in thy borders and filleth thee with the finest of the wheat. Amen. He send, sendeth forth his commandment upon earth. His word runneth very swiftly. He giveth snow like wool. He scattereth the hoarfrost like ashes. He casteth forth his ice like morsels. Who can stand before his cold? He sendeth out his word and melteth them. He casteth his wind to blow and the waters flow. He showeth his word unto Jacob, his statutes and his judgments unto Israel. Right. He hath not dealt so with any nation. And as for his judgments, they have not known them. Praise ye the Lord. Amen. I just want us to look at a couple of these things and thank the Lord for what he has done for us. Look at verse 2, if you would, with me. The Lord built, buildeth up Jerusalem. He gathereth together the outcast of Israel. That kind of goes in a little bit with what, with what Charlie was talking about. The Lord buildeth up Jerusalem, his people, his house that we have here. And we have either been, we've chosen to leave other places or been outcast of places. We've given up things to, to serve the Lord. We wanted to serve the Lord. He gathereth, to, he gathereth together his outcast of Israel. Has the Lord gathered you together? Has he brought you to a place? The Lord build us up Jerusalem. For a completely different thought, he telleth the number of the stars, he calleth them all by their names. I wish it wasn't raining for the guys who went out uh, camping, but if you look up at the stars, if you're way out in the country, you can actually look up and see the stars, and they're like the sands on the, on the seashore. And yet the Lord knows every one of those names of those stars, and it's nothing unto him. He just flings them out there. That is our God. That is how great He is. Amen. Great is our Lord and of great power. His understanding is infinite. We read in Isaiah 40, who is His counselor? Who, who gave the Lord any counsel? Nobody. Right? I love that. Our God created the stars and everything. The Lord lifteth up the meek. I like that. Nine, He giveth to the beast His food and to the young ravens which cry... I look here across this congregation. I know the Lord's given you your food. He just now gave us some great food, right? The Lord's done that all the days of our life. Is He not good? He is good. He is good to us. He is good to me. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him, Him, and those that hope in His mercy. Amen. I love this. The Lord tells us what He takes pleasure in. And when you're reading your Bibles, I'm not eloquent. That's why I'm staying here with the Bible. But I'm thankful for that. He tells us this. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear Him. Does that give you comfort? Do you fear the Lord? Are you glad that He's telling you that, that you fear Him and that you hope in His mercy? That that's what He takes pleasure in? I'm thankful that He's written me a love letter. I'm thankful for that. The Lord is good. Amen. And I'm just going to jump down to verses 19 and 20, which is kind of what really started all of this. He showeth His word unto Jacob. Kind of what Brother Newell talked about this morning. Are we thankful for the statutes and the judgments that the Lord has shown us? I'm very thankful for them. He hath not dealt so with any other nation. Remember, Israel was the smallest of nations, right? And yet he gave his word to them. We are blessed in that the Lord has given us much truth, his word. And are we thankful for it? We should be. I'm thankful for it. I, I just want to thank the Lord for that. And I want to praise ye the Lord. So with that, let's do what number seven says. It says, sing unto the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praise to the Lord. 
So if you would get your Psalters now and turn to Psalm 147 in the Psalter. And you're going to have to pay attention. We're going to break it up just a little bit. I want to sing 1 through 5, verses 1 through 5, then 9 through 11, and then 19 and 20. So we're going to sing Psalm 147, 1 through 5, 9 through 11, 19 and 20. And we're going to do this to Pisgah, Jesus, thou art the sinner's friend. And as your Singing these unto the Lord, think upon these words. Think upon them. And think about them as what the Lord has done for you. And let's sing unto the Lord with joy and thanksgiving. Please turn to uh, Ephesians chapter 2. We'll read the first ten verses in a moment. As we read, I'm asking you to have three things in mind to be looking for. In these verses, be looking for our condition before God intervened in your life, spiritually. Be looking for your condition. Be looking for the declarations of God's grace and mercy bestowed upon us. It's going to be spelled out in several different ways and words. And thirdly, look at the results that God expects and will accomplish by his intervention in our lives. First, we're looking at our condition without God. Second, we're looking for God's declaration of his work in our lives. And thirdly, the results of that declaration. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained, that we should walk in them. Amen. Let's look at verse 1 and verse 10. In verse 1, our condition is plainly spoken. It is a condition of being dead in our relationship to God. The declaration of God's work is there also. It is the work of making alive that which is dead. For you hath he quickened. And the result is life. Our great salvation is spelled out here in the term of being alive to God when we weren't before. If God didn't intervene and enter into your life or mine, we would not today have life toward him. He's the one who does that quickening. It's all together of him. Look at verse 10 with me also, please. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. What is our condition? We're clay in his hands. He is the potter. He's the savior. He's the creator. We are the objects of his work. He has done some work here. It's declared to be 
that he's created us in Christ Jesus unto good works. What good works are you able to recognize in your own life as being God's work? I trust that you can see some, and I trust that you are anxious day by day that there should be a multiplication of those works, a revelation of those works, because they bring glory to him, and they bring assurance to the soul of the person who has the works. What a, what a chapter on salvation. One of my favorite chapters, or part of a chapter, I trust it will be one that you recognize, and when you read it, you'll think of your condition and say, thank you, Lord, for delivering me out of it. That you'll rejoice in his grace, in his creative power, in his regeneration, spoken of here by the word quickening. And I trust you'll desire that your life is filled with the fruit of his work in your life, created unto good works. Without them, a profession, a claim, a thought of being one of the Lord's people is baseless. His works have been done. May they be manifest in this church, in each of our lives, to his praise. Amen. Amen. Brother Philip, and then Brother Jeff, if you gentlemen would come forward at this time. Man, tomorrow, I can't believe I have to go to work. It's Monday. I don't want to go to work on a Monday. Oh, and not only that, I have to get in my 10-year-old truck. Oh, can I not have a brand new truck? Can I not go to a job where the salary's much higher? That's one uh, way in life you can walk. Then there's another way in life that's much different. Lord, thank you for a job I get to go to tomorrow in this economy. Amen. Lord, thank you for a truck that runs. Lord, thank you for the air conditioning in that truck. Amen. Lord, I don't want to walk all the way to work. Those are two different aspects. Right. I've got some questions to ask myself and everyone in the audience. Do you want a satisfied life? Do you want a peaceful existence before you go meet God? Do you want to be happier than your coworkers, family members, church members, anyone else? Do you want a happier life? Do you see happy Christians and you're like, oh, that is the life I want. I would just be so much more content and happy. What price would you pay for this life? I just spent a lot of time in school learning about risk reward. Um, what you put in to what you get out. You know what? There's something I'm going to talk about here in a second that's free. Right. And the yield is exceptionally much more than that. The risk. There is no risk. Amen. So how do you measure that? My teacher would be dumbfounded on that question. The average Christian says, yes, if I had this or that, I would be content. By average Christian, I mean a Christian that has a godly form but denies the power thereof. The majority of the Christians out there. That's what I mean by average. Let's look at a few things that Christians, these average Christians think will make them happy. Oh, you know what? If I got married, that would make me happy. One other thing I did a great deal of when I was in school was having to cite sources and look through lots of documents. So I pulled out a lot of documents. The first one's on marriage. Yes, you know what? I see all these married people and they seem to be happy. If I got happy, I would be content. I would be as happy as other people. Well, I did a, stir- a survey. I looked at a number of sources and guess what? 50% of all marriages end in divorce in 2010. Let's see, if we go through there, that's you, you, you. That's 50% end in divorce. Why does everyone think marriage will make you happy? Then I was like, oh, I got it. All that school did teach me something. If I got married twice, wrong. 67% in divorce. Okay, you got even me. A third time. If that, three's a lucky number, right? If I got married a third time, that would make me happy. Guess what? 75% of third marriages end in divorce. Marriage ain't going to make you happy. The second one, 
As a young man, a job's important to me. Or in this aspect, take care of my family. Okay, Lord, if you give me a job, I will be happy. A good job, I'll be happy. Guess what? I did some more research. And I know, I know a lot of workers and a lot of people around. I'm not that old yet, but I've, I see a lot around. I see people that aren't content. There was a, a, a huge study done. Over, almost over a million people were surveyed. And guess what? Only 45% of them liked their jobs. That means more than half didn't like their jobs. Oh, so a job's not going to make you happy. What's going to make us happy? Oh, you know, I got one more, though. If those last two aren't going to make you happy, there is one more that's going to make you happy. Money. Oh, you know, I learned a lot about money, too. But it doesn't make you happy. There's a famous saying, money is the root of all evil, and it's true. More studies were done. You know, I'm thankful for all these people that do studies, so I can just pull them off the Internet and read them to you. But I did read a study. People that are wealthy, you know, hundreds of thousands, millions of dollars, this study was done that they are less happy than the average income family. So money doesn't make us happy. You know, I've got a verse that does make you happy. But godliness with contentment is great gain. That will make you happy. Not a bigger car, not a bigger house. But godliness with contentment will. This is a great verse, one of my favorite verses. I'm going to emphasize on the contentment part. The godly is more important. But if you have the godly, you'll have the contentment. Amen. It will bring great gain in our lives no matter what the circumstances. Right. If you or I have been discontent or unsatisfied in our lives, we can make a choice and be content. It will change the outlook of our lives. Everyone around you will wonder what just happened. And it just takes a simple set. It's free. It's quick. Doesn't cost much. Costs nothing. And guess what? There are no disadvantages to doing it. So one of the things that I was taught is you, you should make a list on anything you're gonna you're gonna purchase, you're gonna decide to do, a job. You always make a pros and a cons list. And I was sitting there thinking, I'm gonna make a pros and cons list for contentment and see if the people see see what they think about the pros and cons. Well, I got all these pros, and I was like, okay, I got to get my, my arm ready for the cons. And I was like, wait, there aren't any cons on this list. Right. There's no disadvantages to being content. Amen. <laughs> wait, you can't go wrong with it. It's just a simple choice to be content. We see the world all around us. No one's content. Why? Well, we have some things to be content about. Amen. You know, if someone did have things to be content about, it was Paul in the, in the Bible. He was shipwrecked. Beaten, imprisoned, you know, had affliction, afflictions that we don't know about. He didn't have cars, houses, electricity. But you know what? He's got a verse in here for us. It's Philippians 4.11. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. Amen. You may ask, well, how long will this contentment last? If I do all these things you're telling me, Phil, and I, I just get... A smile on my face, how long is it going to last? Proverbs 14, 14. All the days of the afflicted are evil. Those uncontent people that just complain about everything and nothing's ever good enough and it's always green on the other side. But the second half of the verse. But he that is, but he that is of a merry heart hath a continual feast. Right. Being content is to be satisfied, happy, desiring nothing more or nothing different. Limiting one's desires, willing to put up with something, it is the uh, opposite of covetousness. We have a choice today. I just read some statistics. We have a choice today to be the opposite of those unhappy people. Things aren't going to make you happy. The Lord's going to make you happy. Be content with Him. You're not going to be happy with other things. The Bible says it. We can look all around us and see that. The rich aren't happy. I'm going to say the married aren't happy, but no, I didn't mean that. The ungodly married aren't happy. Right. People in high positions aren't happy in, in their work. If we have the Lord, we can be happy and content. Let us today make a choice to be content. Amen. No title to these words. Nothing new. Nothing profound except for what the Lord has said already. 
Romans 5.10 says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Amen. How did we become enemies? Brother Newell already read both these verses. Genesis 2.17 But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Genesis 3.6 And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. Which is why we read in Romans 8.22, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. We all died. We all became enemies. But we read just a few verses after those in Genesis. And I believe Newell read these also. Genesis 3.15, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy in the Bible, and it's the beginning of the manifestation of the infinite wisdom involved in our glorious, miraculous salvation. A virgin-born man-child without a son of Adam as his father, who lives a sinless life, who is put to death for no crime of his own, but suffers much more than death for our sins, is buried, rises 72 hours later, walks on the earth, and then ascends to David's throne in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father to make intercession for us, having reconciled us. What wisdom in all is prophesied and foretold by our Lord. As we focus on the word pleased from our Father in heaven in these verses, we see how profound and inexplicable this is. At his baptism, Luke 3.22, And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. In fulfillment of prophecy about our Lord in Matthew 12.18, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. And then at the transfiguration in Matthew 17:5, while he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And then the biggest yet in the Bible, Isaiah 53:10, yet. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Amen. Well, we've been provoked to love our Lord Jesus Christ more. My brother Jerry, we've been exhorted and motivated that the time is coming. The torch is passing. Are we making preparations for that? Wonderful praise for the Lord for all that he's done for us. And reminder of how important singing is. That it is a praise to the Lord and what it should be in our lives. Beautiful reminder from Ephesians chapter 2 about what our condition is the great declaration of God's work for us, and then the results that God expects. I hope you see a pattern here, brethren. I hope it's something that you're just, it's not new, but it should be a constant reminder to us. The grace of God leads us to good works. As Brother Rollins said, You don't have any firm assurance or knowledge in your life if you're not living and doing what Jesus Christ and his apostles taught in his word.
That's not how we earn eternal life. We can't do that. Eternal life is totally from the Lord. But if you want to assure your heart that you have been saved by His grace, out of a heart overflowing of love towards Him, you want to pile up all the good works you can to show your love for Him. Brother Philip, beautiful, satisfied, happy life. And it's a choice. It's a choice we can make. You know, the burden, the monkey's back on our back if we don't make that choice. And then Brother Jeff, all these beautiful passages showing the beloved Son. And again, what a great, glorious, merciful, loving Father we have that was not only pleased with Him and His perfections, but He was pleased to bruise Him for our sakes. Brother Matthew, Brother Nathan, if you don't mind, I'll add you to the list. So there'll be four on Wednesday night. Our most gracious Father, we offer up these services, Lord, to Thee. May they be acceptable in Thy sight. Father, if there be anything that we've said, thought, or done that's been wrong, then, Father, please forgive it. But, Lord, those things that we have done that are pleasing in Thy sight, Lord, help us that we might do more of that. We thank you, Lord, for being with us this day, for showing us and reminding us of your truth. Help us, Lord, to take it with us and to live by it this day. Remember the things that we've asked for in our prayers, Father. Grant them in your own good time, and we'll give you the praise, the glory, the honor, and the thanksgiving for it. And now dismiss us with thy blessing, Father. For we ask all of this in the glorious, wonderful name of Jesus Christ. In his name we ask it. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.